Welcome to the Bethesda Church Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us today. If you'd like to contribute financially to this ministry, you can do so at BethesdaChurch.tv slash give and simply select the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, today we have a treat for you guys. He's no stranger to Bethesda. He's their friend, and, and he is doing such an awesome, awesome work in Richmond that you guys don't even know, but you've had the opportunity to be a part of through your giving. And today we have Pastor Drew Dunbar with us. So could you give it up for Pastor Drew as he comes to bring the word? Hey, give it up for Jesus before you grab a seat. Yeah, yeah. He deserves a lot more than I do. You can have a seat. You can have a seat. Uh, Turn to the person next to you. Tell them you're happy you're sitting next to them in church today. Turn to the person on the other side and say, well, I had to sit somewhere. (laughs) I'm so glad to be here celebrating with you today. I want to first give honor to your pastors. Um, Pastor Chad and Karen are just absolutely incredible uh, man and woman of God, and and I I hope you never forget how good you got it uh, to have them as pastors. They really are just amazing. My wife and I are inspired by them. We've been encouraged by them. Uh, They've played a role in our ministry for years. I've actually asked Pastor Chad to serve as an overseer um, to the church that we're starting in Richmond, which is essentially, it's a a New Testament term for basically me asking him to be my pastor. Like pastors need pastors too. Um, And so I've asked him to serve that in that role and he has agreed without hesitation. And so we're connected, whether you like it or not, your uncle Drew is, uh, is family. Um, so, uh, you also, you have, uh, pastor Jeremy just mentioned this, but yeah, whether you knew it or not, you actually invested because of your generosity and your giving to Bethesda church. Bethesda has given to risen church. Uh, so because you were generous and gave here to your church, you are actually playing a role at helping to start another church in another city where people are going to come to know Jesus as their Lord and savior, where marriages are going to be turned around. Kids are going to be set on the right path. It's awesome to see how the kingdom works like that. And so I'm, I'm thankful um, that you have done that. You've also sent people, uh, whether you knew that or not. There have been people who have relocated uh, just in the course of us moving, not because we moved there. They wouldn't do that for us, I don't think. Um, but people who have relocated from Bethesda who are going to be serving on the Risen Church team. And um, so I'm thankful for this church. I really am. And let me make this disclaimer. Let me say this up front. If you know anybody uh, who lives in the Richmond area who is not going to church or who you know personally and you're just like, you want to give me their number, I would love to call them. I would love to text them. I would love to take them out to lunch and see if maybe Risen Church is starting because of them, maybe for them. Don't ask them if it's okay. Uh, they'll say no, I promise. They will say, no, don't give that weird preacher that came to your church today my phone number, Um, but I won't mistreat them, I promise. I'll just take them to dinner. I would love to connect with anybody that you might know in that area um, there. So are you happy you're here today? You excited? You want to get into the Word? All right, before we do that, I need to say hello to a couple of people. I don't know if you know this or not, but um, Scott and Jody Vaughn uh, and their daughters Michelle and uh, Carrie are in Nicaragua. 
I believe, today, uh, and they are watching online right now. So could you guys maybe shout for just a second, say hey to your brothers and sisters in Nicaragua? Yeah, what's up? What's up, guys? Um, he just texted me a picture of the screen. They're, they're streaming live, and so uh, they are down there serving some kids in need and some families in need and helping some churches down there, and they are preaching the gospel. And so uh, we're glad that you guys are tuning in for the next couple of minutes. I tried to, I was going to um, say some things in Spanish, but I don't know Spanish. And so I was going to try to learn the phrase, this is the only thing I know in Spanish, in Spanish, but I couldn't get that right either. I couldn't, uh, they said it too fast on the Google Translate thing that I was listening to. So I couldn't get it. So sorry. It's all English today. Let me pray for you. Uh, and then we'll, we'll jump in to Philippians chapter three. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for bringing us here today. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the blessing that it is to its community. God, I pray that you would continue to do incredible, wonderful things um, through this church. God, let us see many more people saved and set on the right path. Let us see marriages um, restored and changed. Let us see people healed. God, let us see the world changed because your church showed up. Um, every single time we gather, God, everywhere we go, let us take your presence with us. Speak to us today. Open our hearts and minds to receive from your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have been in a series called Choose Joy, and uh, as I understand it, that series ends today, um, and, and there is some incredible text in Philippians chapter 3 that we're going to get into today, and I can't think of really a better way to end a series, to end a thought. And so if you'll stick with me, I want to give you three ideas. The first two things I'm going to offer you once we get into this, and I'm giving you the precursor, um, the, the first two things I'm going to offer you are joy killers, Two things that the Apostle Paul teaches us and shows us and says, these things will kill joy in your life. They will suck joy out of you. And then after we get those two things and we recognize them and we call them what they are and we don't fall into those traps anymore, I want to end with one uh, reassuring statement that the Apostle Paul kind of points to over and over and over again throughout this whole book and, uh, and, and we'll land there. You with me? You good for that? You look good, 11.30. You really do. You're my crowd. 11.30 is when I start to come alive. The morning is over, and we are into the actual day. It has begun at 11.30. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Whatever happens, whatever? What, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Whatever happens. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. See, with Philippians, Paul has written arguably the four happiest chapters in all of Scripture. Maybe in all writing, period. He has written the four happiest chapters. And he starts this third section of this book by saying, no matter what happens, whatever happens, you can rejoice. In fact, you should rejoice in the Lord. And he's writing this, and this is what's important to see, from a prison cell, from a dungeon. He is chained up, in, surrounded by death and human waste, and he may die today like he doesn't know. Every single day he could potentially be killed. Uh, it just depends on the whim of the people who are in charge of the prison. 
and he's in there for preaching the gospel. He's in there for doing something that really was not exactly illegal. He's in prison for basically saying, God is better than you guys think he is. I mean, that's the message of the gospel that Paul taught. God is more loving than you think he is, more full of grace than you think he is, more full of mercy than you think he is. And they threw him in prison for that. And from there, he writes the four happiest chapters. Can you imagine being a cellmate or a guard looking at the Apostle Paul as he's writing his letter, laughing and wee, right? Don't worry, be happy. Now, that, this guy would have looked insane to everyone else present, yet he writes this. And, and let me also add, he has no reason to believe anyone will ever read what he's writing. There's no guarantee that this will. Can you imagine him asking the guards for a forever stamp, right? If I write this letter, can you make sure you get it to my friends? And no, you're a prisoner in a dungeon. He has no reason to believe this will ever make it to anybody. And I only make that point to say he starts this chapter. He starts this section by saying, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. That's remarkable. Can I just confess to you that there are times when I put on a happy face and try to appear strong. Like as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as a leader, as a friend, there have been times when I felt pressure to smile in the midst of personal stress or pain or, or difficulty. But if I were writing a letter from a dungeon, ill from the conditions, not sure if I'm going to die today, arrested for something that really isn't even a crime, chained up, standing in human waste, I don't know what I would write in that letter. I don't, but I do know that I wouldn't write anything that I didn't believe was absolutely true. And so I believe that what we get from Paul, because he's writing from where he's writing from, I believe that we're getting something from Paul that he really believes, that he believes beyond a shadow of a doubt. He doesn't really have any reason to believe anybody's going to read this. So he has no reason to put on a happy face, Right? He has no reason to try to pretend to be strong. He has no reason to mislead or fake his way through anything. Yet he teaches about sustaining joy. And I believe what he teaches could help every one of us here today. If you'll kind of lean in, if you'll give me just a few moments, and if you're not really a Bible person or not really a Jesus person, you're new to this, I'm glad you're here. You're in the perfect place to explore matters of faith. You're in the perfect place to begin considering these things. And I hope that you would also lean in and just consider if this book, if this message from God has something to speak that maybe transcends what you even thought was true. He continues, and he offers us a glimpse at these joy killers. In verse 2, he says, watch out for those dogs. Anybody know those dogs? Now, don't look around. Those people who do evil those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Now, for context here, you should know that for us in our culture, circumcision is kind of more of a surgical decision that parents make when a boy is born. But at this time, it was a religious act uh, that really only Jewish boys would have had done. 
Anyone who wasn't born a Jewish boy would not have been circumcised. So most of the people that the gospel is being preached to for the first time ever, especially from Paul um, later on in his ministry, are Gentiles. So at the end of a sermon, when the apostle Paul says, now who would like to receive salvation in Jesus, the men in the church, the men in the room, they're going to have to really mean it if they raise their hand to receive salvation. Do you catch my drift? You got to make a real commitment here. I know you guys are building a facility. Can you imagine you would have to maybe build some sort of surgical section in the lobby that if someone decides they want to be saved, that's what he's saying. These, there are people who are saying that there is some physical act that was always supposed to be about a heart thing anyways. There's a physical act that you have to do, and he warns against it. And then he actually continues. He says, well, we worship by the Spirit of God. We who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. Nothing we did. It's what he did. We put no confidence in human effort. So joy killer number one, if you're interested in this kind of thing, and if you want to write it down, joy killer number one is adopting religion. Paul warns us against adopting a system of practices and religion. You are going to be tempted to believe that what Christ did is not enough and that you have to add to his work. Anytime you start to try to add to Jesus's completely sufficient work for your salvation, it is called religion and it will kill your joy. Why? Because it does two things. Let me offer you these things. Religion clears the path for guilt and guilty people are not joyful people. People walking around carrying shame and guilt for the things that they've done, the things that they think, the things that they uh, are ashamed of, those people are not joyful. And by its very nature, religion is a recipe for increased guilt. That's what it's actually for, right? Religion is an answer for our guilt. It's God is mad at me and I've got to make it up to him somehow. And so we derive a system of payment to pay back God. That's what religion is. And so not only is it insufficient, not only is there nothing that you could do that could possibly make up for it, that could possibly fix it, that's why Jesus had to come, it also adds to your guilt. Religion does not even fix the problem that it sets out to fix. Religion is designed to pay for my guilt, but all religion really does is make me feel more guilty. And this is one of the reasons that adopting religion doesn't work for us. It will only kill joy. This is how every world religion other than Christianity even works. If you were to ask anyone who adheres to another world religion, um, if they are certain of their salvation, if they are certain that they will inherit heaven, that they will inherit whatever it is that their religion promises them at the end of their life, they will say, no, I am not certain. If they're truly devout, if they truly understand their own religion, Christianity is the only one that offers us assurance of salvation. Because there isn't a payment system that you're always kind of wondering, I don't really know where I stand before Almighty God. If your faith is in Jesus for your salvation, then you're saved. I, it's not fair. It's not reasonable. It's not, uh, it's not how I would do it. But it's how God has decided. He has decided to let Jesus be a completely sufficient payment 
He has allowed him to be our salvation. If you regularly doubt where you stand before Almighty God, it is possible that you've fallen into a trap of religion, and I would encourage you. The Apostle Paul would encourage you, take Jesus at his word. He is enough. Take the, apostles word, the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians 3. Religion is over. Jesus is enough. Religion died the moment that Jesus died on a cross for the sins of the entire world. That paid for it. That covered it. You can't also pay for it. It's already been paid for. Isn't that incredible? I mean, imagine if I were to take you to Dairy Queen, not today, um, but another day. Imagine if I were to take you to Dairy Queen and I were to buy you a blizzard and I, and I ordered for you. I was like, I'm, they're going to have a blizzard and they would like some M&Ms in it and some Oreos and just a little bit of hot fudge to make the vanilla ice cream seem a little bit chocolatey. And they mixed it up for you and they put it on the counter and they said, that will be $4.87. And I said, I got this. And I pulled a $5 bill out of my pocket and I slapped it on the counter. And I said, keep the change, you ice cream genius, to the person who was taking the money, right? And then you walked up and said, I would like to pay for my blizzard now. What would that person say? They would say it's already paid for. They would say you can't pay for something that's already been paid. It's already taken care of. They would even possibly even say to you, I, I know for a fact it's been paid for because the guy that paid for it did it in such a weird way. He called me an ice cream genius. Very confusing. Left change, but it was only 13 cents worth of change. So I don't know what he was trying to prove, but I know that it's paid for and I know you can't pay for it too. Yet this is what we do with our religion. We try to pay for something that's already paid for. You can't do it. And all it will do is add guilt to you. All it will do is suck life out of you. And all it will do is kill your joy. Is this helpful? Guilty people are not joyful people. Yet when we adopt religion, we attempt to make ourselves guilty again for things that have already been paid for. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. When you were at your worst, not once you started getting it together, when you were a mess, Jesus invited you to experience salvation in him, and you can't be more saved at any point than you were the moment you accepted Jesus' all-sufficient sacrifice for you. It was enough. God knew what he was getting into when he invited you to know him. Right, God and Jesus are not standing in heaven saying, really, him? Did you have any idea who that, what he, he was going to do that? Like, yeah, he knew. He knew how messed up you were when he invited you, and he still invited you. He knew how messed up you were going to remain for the next decade after he invited you, and he still invited you. He knew that whenever you promised him that you'd never tell another lie, that you were lying then. He knew that whenever you promised you'd never steal again, that you'd never miss a service at church, that you'd never miss a tithe payment, that you'd never mess up again. He knew that that wasn't true, and he still invited you. This is salvation through Jesus. Religion tries to take that away from us. second thing that religion does is religion clears a path for pride. And prideful people are not joyful people. See, Paul says, we put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own efforts if anyone could. Here, here Paul starts to talk about how pride kills joy through religion. He says, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. 
Well, do you now? I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience, the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Religious pride causes us to do this. As ridiculous as this kind of thing may look for us, we do it. We build a resume for ourselves. We get so proud of the sacrifices we've made, the things that we've given up for God, and we replay those things over and over in our mind to, to make ourselves feel proud. We tell other people about it. We list them every opportunity we get. And Paul takes a few moments here to give his readers a glimpse at his own pedigree. And then he says that these things, they used to matter to me. This used to matter. This used to be a nice resume to me. Until, verse 7, says, I once thought these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Worthless. Is that surprising to you? He would say, this stuff used to matter to me, and now I consider it worthless. Maybe he misspoke. Maybe that's not what he meant. Yes, everything else is worthless. Oh, yeah, it must be what he meant because he said it again. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. So whether you are full of guilt for the things that, that, that we've done, that are already paid for and forgiven, or we're finding some false sense of value in our pride because of how good we are, it's important to notice that when we adopt religion, it will eventually kill your joy. It will suck joy away. Adopting religion does this inevitably. Eventually, only Jesus was able to live up to any religious standard that's worthy of God anyways. And so putting our confidence in his efforts is a step that we can take towards choosing joy. Does this make sense? The second joy killer that I would like for you to see is world allegiance. World allegiance. It's the other end of the spectrum. If you were to read Philippians chapter 3, which I would encourage you to do at some point this week, you would see that Paul continues for the next several verses talking about um, religious uh, commitments and adopting religion and how that sucks joy out of your life. And then he shifts his conversation to, in verse 18, to world allegiance, to talking about something else. You won't find joy trying to achieve a standard of living that's worthy of heaven, but you also won't find joy by living by the standards of the culture and people and systems and norms of the world that we live in. And this is the shift that he makes here. In Philippians 3.18, he says, For I have told you often before... And I say it again with tears in my eyes that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and they think only about life here on earth. What's he saying here? He, he's showing us that, see, Paul has people on one end of the spectrum constantly trying to be saved by their own efforts, by their religious pedigree. And on the other end of the spectrum, He's got people trusting Christ for their salvation, yet living like there is no God. And to both of them, he says, your joy is in danger. Your joy is in danger when you adopt religion. Your joy is also in danger 
when you pledge allegiance to the world that you live in. Some believers are trying to earn the love of Jesus, while others are in love with the world that they live in. See, a huge piece of choosing joy in Christ is rejecting the lie that the world that we live in has anything that can truly bring us sustaining joy. And so in order to talk about this next section here, I have to talk about something that maybe will make you nervous at first. Don't be nervous, okay? Give me a minute. Uh, give me just a minute. I want to say this. Sin always leads to death. This is what the Apostle Paul is showing us. Sin promises joy and delivers misery. And if you see people nodding their head or saying, mm-hmm, or doing that, that's because they've experienced this firsthand. We all have. Sin promises joy and then delivers something else. It lies to us. Now, I realize it's unpopular for a preacher to talk about the dangers of sin these days, but I honestly believe that that's unpopular because a lot of us do not fully understand what sin really is. And this is important. I want to offer you a, something that I think is kind of a big deal that could really shift your, your focus and help you to begin to discover joy in your life like never before. I think that a lot of people don't like to talk about sin and don't like to talk about, don't like for preachers to talk about sin because we have a punishment perspective of sin. See, you, you may believe to some extent that when you sin, God punishes you for your sin. And that makes it hard for some people to, to think of God as love. A God who punishes me for my sin, how could he possibly be loving? Especially whenever you consider that sometimes the punishment doesn't really seem to fit the crime, like it seems way worse than, than the thing that was done. And double especially whenever you consider that sometimes when I sin, it hurts other people who didn't even commit the sin, right? So a punishment perspective kind of falls apart right there, yet we still kind of adopt that sometimes. We have this God who's mad and punishes us whenever we mess up. But this is my personal theology. On Can I give you my personal theology on something? Um, and it, as with all theology, if this is not helpful to you, if this does not help you see God's love more clearly, help you love God more deeply, simply discard it on your way out. But here's what I would offer you. I would say that a punishment perspective is not really present in the Bible. Even in, with original sin, even when the concept of sin is introduced to us in the book of Genesis, we have a situation where a punishment perspective... And a lot of us remember it this way, but I'm going to tell you that's not what happened. We have this perspective that God said, don't eat from that tree. And if you do, i got to kick you out, right? Because we think about, like, God kicked them out after they ate the tree, punished them, kicked them out of the garden. But that's not the exchange that took place, is it? If you were to go back and read Genesis with Adam and Eve in the garden, what you will discover God saying to his children who he loved, who he created, who he loved to walk with, what he said is everything that you see is good for food. You can eat from any of these, but don't eat from that one because it's poison. That is what God actually said. He actually said you can have any of this, but if you eat that, you'll die. That is not a God punishing. That is a God warning lovingly. Don't do that. I designed this thing. I know how it works. Don't eat that one or you'll die. And guess what? They ate it. And guess what? They did. Right? 
Adam and Eve aren't walking around in it. You may have met them if they had not eaten of the tree that God said was poison. I learned this myself a few years back. God, when, it, when he began to communicate this to me, um, my daughter, who is now four years, my older daughter, who is now four years old, um, developed a habit of standing up on the edge of our bed. She had just started walking not long before. She would stand up on the edge of our bed and she would get our attention, my wife or my attention, and she would do this little number right here and then she would turn around and run to the back of the bed and dive into the pillows at the back of the bed, right? And she did it all the time and every single time we would try to correct her, we would warn her, we'd be like, don't do that, you're gonna hurt yourself, don't do that, don't do that. We would often grab her by the shoulders and like speak very sternly like, please don't do this. Adeline, you are going to hurt yourself, right? And then she inevitably, she keeps doing it over and over and over again. And one day, why do we keep putting her on the bed? I don't know. Okay, she was our first kid. <laughs> We're doing better with the second. All right. <laughs> Nora lives a much safer life than her sister did. I don't know how, how this kept happening. But anyways, one day she stood on the edge of the bed. She got our attention. She saw us and she smiled and she turned around and she took off running and she overshot the pillows at the back of the bed and smacked her forehead on the wall, dented the drywall in our apartment, like drilled it and started screaming and shrieking. And I ran over and I picked her up and I could see in her eyes and I will never forget the look that my daughter gave me. She was mad. She was embarrassed. She was hurting. And she thought I did it. She had a punishment perspective. Now, we laugh at that because we know better, right? What was really happening is I, a loving father who understands how the world works better than she does, because I've been here longer, I know what's going to happen, so I warn her, don't do that, don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. She thought I punished her. She thought I hit her in the head with a wall. I didn't have to punish her. See, this is, this is my personal theology on this. I don't, I don't believe God punishes us. I don't think he has to. He programmed the matrix, right? He put the world here. He knows how it works. And then he told us how to live. And he said, here's how I created you to live. And this is a huge idea for us to consider as we begin to embrace this idea of, wait a second, sin is not wrong because it makes God mad and he has to punish us. Sin is wrong because it's not the way God created the world to work. It will not deliver on the things that it promises to deliver on. God is teaching us how to live with joy. God is teaching us how to live with peace. God is teaching us how to live by the way that he worked, programmed it all to work. He's warning us. Sin leads to death. Not because it makes God mad at you so he has to drop punishments on you, but because it contradicts the way he created the world to work. Sin promises peace and love and satisfaction and joy, and it cannot deliver on those things. And God loves you so much that he tells you what they are. And he tells us over and over again, don't pledge your allegiance to the world. Don't go chasing after those things. They won't deliver on what they tell you they're going to deliver on. When Paul writes that those who pledge their allegiance to the world are headed for destruction... He is trying to help us see that choosing joy means choosing a different allegiance. It means living like eternity matters more than this present moment. 
I told you I was going to give you two joy killers and then offer you a perspective shift that I think could change absolutely everything about your life when it comes to choosing joy. I think that this key that I'm going to offer you in these next, through the, the next verse of Scripture and, and with what I have to close this out, I think this is the key. I really do. I think this is the key to sustaining joy no matter what your circumstance, no matter what may try to come against you. Verse 20. Paul says, don't pledge your allegiance to the world. We are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly awaiting his return as our Savior. See, the greatest source of joy for anyone who trusts in Jesus, and if you're here today or you're watching online and you do not trust in Jesus, you can today. And you will find the greatest source of sustaining joy in this our greatest source of sustaining joy is the belief that we were made for another world. That we are eagerly waiting for the curtain of reality to be pulled back to reveal what has actually been true all along. How do you choose joy that will endure? You find your joy in things that will endure. And not wrap all of our joy up in temporary things that won't last. I'm not advocating a disconnected, you know, discontented, sky-gazing approach to Christianity where we're just waiting for the end of the world because then we'll be happier. By the way, that's what the villains in every science fiction movie I've ever seen are doing. They can't wait for the world to end. Like, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about putting our hope elsewhere. We're talking about living here and now, yet recognizing that here and now cannot bring me joy. Only Jesus, who is eternal, can bring me joy. Only heaven, which is eternal, can bring me joy. I live here and now, but my heart lies in heaven. My heart belongs with eternal things. If you want to choose joy here and now, perhaps you should shift your focus from yourself and from this world onto heaven. Perhaps that would change your perspective for everything. And I want to offer you a couple of ideas for changing your perspective. As the band would come, I'm going to I'm going to close with a couple of ideas here, and I hope that you'll kind of lean in for these. These are somewhat practical. I would encourage you to think this way. This is how we start to think eternally. The first thing, what if you started to consider that your actions today will echo for all of eternity? How would you act differently if you started to consider what I do today will matter forever? How I react to this situation today will matter forever. How I react to even this difficult, painful moment, this thing that has happened, this diagnosis that has come my way, this financial struggle that has come my way, this job transition, how I act right now could matter forever. It could be celebrated for all of eternity. I think I encourage you to consider this the last time I was here for a, a first Wednesday earlier on in the year. I said, every one of us, at the end of our lives, are going to stand before Almighty God, and we are going to make one of two declarations. We are either going to behold Jesus. We're either going to behold our Heavenly Father for who He truly is, and we're going to say, you are way better 
than I thought you were. I wish I had trusted you more. Or you're going to look at your heavenly father and you're going to say, you are way better than I thought you were. I'm glad I never sold you short. Right? And the second is way better. Either way, either way, you are going to be amazed at how good he is. You are going to be blown away by how loving he truly is. You're going to be blown away by his grace and his mercy and his beauty. But you're either going to say, I wish I had found more joy in you. Or I'm glad I always found my joy in you. I see now that you could handle it. So that's the first thing I would ask you to consider. What, what if you started thinking like your actions today, how you react today could matter for all of eternity. It could be celebrated forever. Secondly, what if you started thinking about people like they are going to matter a hundred years from now when nothing else does? This is one of the huge, huge ideas of sustaining joy that the Apostle Paul is so keen on. It's what most of uh, the, the front half of Philippians chapter 2 is about. He tells us, don't, don't focus on yourself. You want to have joy. You can't put all your focus on yourself. In verse 4, he says, look out for others' interests too. Take an interest in others too. What, what would change in your life if you started thinking about people as eternal? Because they are. See, every day we get worked up and worried and stressed out about temporary things, and often we let our stress and our worry and our anxiety about temporary things affect negatively how we treat eternal things. You look eternal things in the eye when you're mad about a financial issue or you're hurt about somebody that walked out of your life. You look at people who will matter a hundred years from now when nothing else does, when your boat doesn't matter anymore, when your house doesn't matter anymore, when your bank account doesn't matter anymore, people will still matter. They are, the people are forever. What would change if you embraced that perspective? If you started to lean into a, an eternal perspective that says, okay, I'm only going to worry about eternal things. I'm going to find my joy in pursuing only eternal things. People are one thing that's eternal. And I know this is a huge concept for Bethesda Church. I know that you, you treat people like they matter here. You treat people like they matter to God and like they matter to you. What would change in your life if you started to embrace that a little more fully tomorrow morning, this afternoon? Thirdly, and this one's tough, but what if you became the kind of person who faced every difficult moment in your life with joy because you knew that that moment would only last a moment. And that's tough because some moments feel like they last a really long time. That's tough because a, a physical diagnosis is a sentence that might last for the rest of your life here on the earth. That's tough because a financial strain, a job that just is, uh, is miserable, that's something that feels like it lasts a really long time. But what would change? I'm just asking, what would change if you embraced a 
eternal perspective and said, this is really just a moment, even if it feels like a really long time. It's just a moment. I'm not a citizen here. I'm a citizen of heaven. 100 years from now, no matter how difficult this present moment is, 100 years from now, I will have joy in eternal things. Why not embrace that joy right now? Every financial struggle, every health problem, every painful relationship, every unexpected turn, what if we became the kind of people who faced it all with joy because we embraced that it's temporary? Joy is not the absence of trouble. Joy is the confidence that trouble won't last. There is nothing you will ever face in this life that cannot be answered with that idea that the Apostle Paul shares with us in Philippians 3. There's nothing that you will ever face that cannot stand up to this idea that joy is not the absence of trouble. Joy is the confidence that trouble won't last. And trouble is going to come. Jesus promised that trouble would come. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But what? But take heart, for I have overcome this world. You're going to face some stuff that's going to try to take your joy, and it can't take your joy because we have overcome that stuff. That stuff is temporary. So if you would stand right where you are. I want to end this today where the Apostle Paul started. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, the very first thing he said to us, I just want us to read that sentence together, and I want you to say it like you're saying it to somebody in this room who really needs to hear it. What does he say? He says, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Let's say it one more time. Say it like somebody you know needs to hear it. Say it maybe like you need to hear it. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. He is your joy. He can handle it. Whatever trouble you may be facing is temporary. It might feel like it lasts a long time, and I hope it doesn't seem like I'm downplaying your issue. I've got issues of my own, and they don't feel like they're temporary, but I know they are. I know you've got issues, and they don't feel like they're temporary. It feels like it's been going on forever, and it feels like there's no hope in sight, but there is hope. There is joy in God, for he is eternal. You can still choose to rejoice in him whatever happens. They can't take that from us. The enemy can't take that from us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes right where you are? And I don't ask you to do that for any reason other than that. I just, I want you to feel like you're alone in this moment. I want this to be about you and your heavenly father, just you and your God. If you're in here today and you would say, I do not know. Jesus Christ is my Savior. I have not yet chosen a joy that could last. I do not have assurance of my eternity, assurance of my salvation. I'm carrying my own guilt. I'm carrying my own shame. But I feel like Jesus is inviting me to know him, and I want to accept that invitation. If today you would like to embrace salvation, would you just lift your hand right where you are? This is a safe place to do it. I see you. I see you. I see another. Is there anybody else in here 
You can put your hands right back down. And listen, if there's anybody else in this room who didn't raise your hand, but you're still thinking about it, you're still exploring it, you're in the right place to explore it. You're with the right community of people. You don't have to believe everything we believe to belong here. We'll still love you. We'll still open our arms and open our doors to you. Keep coming. But for those who wanted to receive salvation, if there's anybody online who wants to receive salvation today, I want to give you this instruction. The Bible says that if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died on a cross for your sins, and that God raised him from the dead, and now he has the power to give you life to give you joy, to give you peace, that you will be saved. And so I'm going to pray for you. And the only thing I would ask you to do is to pray to your Father in this next moment. I'm not going to tell you what to say in this moment. I'd ask you just to turn towards heaven and say, Jesus, I need you. I'm ready to accept your invitation. God loves clunky prayers from people who don't know how to do it right. He loves to hear. He wants to hear from you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for those who have decided to follow you today, decided to embrace salvation in you today, decided to accept an invitation that you've offered them to a better life, a life that is rich and satisfying and abundant. I pray that you would surround them with people who can help them. God, they're in a community here that could help them so much, Father. I pray that they would find people who could walk with them in this journey. God, pour out your spirit on them that they would immediately sense your love. That right now, as I'm speaking this prayer over them, Father, they would experience your love like never before. They would experience grace and mercy like they've never known. Father, they would begin to see your character becoming their character, that they would begin to desire to be a different person because you have put new life into them. God, and let them discover sustaining joy. In Jesus' name we pray it, amen. Could we celebrate just a moment for those who have just received salvation? For the rest of you, here's what I'd like for you to do. If you're comfortable with this, would you just open your hands out, just a, a posture of receiving. I want to pray a blessing over you. If you want to receive joy today, if you want to choose joy today, let's open our hands. Let's tell God that we want everything he has for us. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for your word. I pray that every single person who now turns their hands towards you, that they would receive joy today, that you would inject them, God, with a peace that passes understanding, a peace that doesn't rely on circumstances to work, God, that actually a peace that comes in spite of circumstances, a joy that shows up in our life in spite of circumstances. Help us to be a people who declare your word, who declare your promises, who declare your goodness, your grace, your love. No matter what our circumstances try to tell us, let us be a people of joy. Let us be a people who change the, the atmosphere every single place that we go because we carry your sustaining eternal joy with us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this week's message from Bethesda Church. We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our website, BethesdaChurch.tv. Thank you for joining us and have a great day.